Welcome to Side Hustle City, and thanks for joining us. Our goal is to help you connect to real people who found success turning their side hustle into a main hustle, and we hope you can too. I'm Adam Kaler. I'm joined by Kyle Stevie, my co-host. Let's get started. All right, guys, welcome back. Another Side Hustle City podcast for your enjoyment. And unfortunately, my trusty co-host, Kyle Stevie, isn't here to join us today because guess what? He got stuck at his nine to five job, but Tim Osborne's here and he joins us today and he doesn't have a nine to five job. <laughs> no, I have like a nine to midnight. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's an entrepreneur. So he's nine to midnight, but you can, you could be flexible with your hours. Right? That's right. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes a nine to nine to five, isn't that uh, accommodating? That's the downside. So, so Tim is here to join us today. He's got a lot of good things to say. Um, we're really excited to have him. Tim had me on his uh, podcast uh, for for class for right. at Cincinnati State, right. right? Right, and actually got raving reviews. Oh, really? All the students absolutely loved you being on. And, oh, good. Uh, well. Especially your contributions to the real estate industry. They're pretty impressed with that. And nice. I had lots of people make good comments. So that was good to hear. Awesome. Well, talk a little bit about that. Like what made you, I mean, you're accomplished. I mean, you were one of the biggest realtors in the state of Indiana right. for a while. I think you just kind of dominated Southeast Indiana for a while there, didn't you? Well, actually I was a real estate broker for 25 years. So 25 years years and over 3000 brokered transactions with myself and different agents across the tri-state, including Indiana, uh, Ohio, and Northern Kentucky. Um, And really I semi-retired from the real estate profession back in 2014 after the housing collapse. And uh, I felt like I didn't want to lose connection to being in the industry. I, you know, i still was investing in real estate, doing other things in real estate and the opportunity to teach as an adjunct uh, professor at Cincinnati state and uh, oversee the program came up and I'm like, this is perfect way to influence, uh, you know, good opportunities for real estate in the future. And so uh, actually we're headed into my second semester now. Nice. uh, Our class uh, has, had some raving reviews because we did your spotlight video and then we did some other spotlight videos on realtors and people in the business that I knew from over the years. And it, I really was wanted to bring a practical application to theory. Cause in, you know, in real estate school, you're learning all the theory, what you got to do to pass the test. Right. Um, but I wanted to add to that. I wanted to add in addition to what you got to do to pass the test, how do you take what you learn for the test and really use it to make money mm-hmm. and use it in your business to be successful. And so uh, it was nice to be, able to bring a lot of leadership coaching, a lot of other uh, practical applications for marketing uh, to the real estate students. And uh, we got these huge raving reviews and uh, I've got 48 signed up for class that starts June 7th. That's awesome. (laughs) Well, I mean, even if, uh, I mean, there's a lot of the people that we bring on here are very successful in real estate. One way or the other, you know, some right. people are buying multifamily. Some people are, you know, just investing in those people. Right. Uh, I've got some friends right now that I'm going to bring on the podcast shortly that um, they just raised twenty million dollars for a hard money fund out of nowhere, and we talked a little bit about that. Yeah. It was crazy how fast they raised it. And it's it, people want to be exposed to real estate. I think people not only want to be exposed to real estate, but people want to get involved again. Um, You know, when the housing collapse happened, you kind of saw a lull for a few years where the interest to be involved in real estate had diminished. People Mm -hmm. were shaken uh, by uh, loss of equity, loss of personal wealth that happened. But we kind of recovered from that. And now we're in what I call the, you know, the next real estate boom. And uh, as many people know, you put a house on the market and you've got offers the next day. And uh, And you've been in this market long enough. You didn't call it a bubble. No. But it's a boom. And there's been many booms, right? And every boom ends in a bubble. And uh, (laughs) it seems like it. The last one was pretty bad, but that was more Wall Street than it was Main Street. I think what you're going to, the problem you've got is you, you have a lot of people who own property 
and uh, they don't have much equity. There hasn't been that time to build equity since the collapse. Um, so what's happening is a part of the shortage of supply is people don't have really the equity to put their, mar- their homes up on the market. So you have the whole supply demand pressure right now where you have people, there's more demand for housing than there is supply. So what that's created is appreciation. And so with the appreciation, now people are starting to say, oh, okay, well, now I've got some actual equity in my home or in my properties I'm thinking about selling. But the other flip side of that is affordable housing and multifamily Oh, my God. You hear so much about affordable housing. I read a stat. And, you know, when I was running for mayor, I was trying to understand what's going on in the city. And I've been a section eight landlord for 15 years, something like that. And, you know, I've had bad tenants. I've had good tenants. I've had unappreciative tenants. (laughs) Uh, You know how that goes. But, um, you know, from what I hear is one out of every four people who qualify, who would qualify for affordable housing actually get it. Yeah, because there's such a shortage. And so what I'm starting to see in my consulting firm is we're getting lots of requests for feasibility studies on new projects. So we're working on a project now up in Columbus in Reynoldsburg, which is 156 unit multi uh, unit development townhomes and apartments. And then we're also seeing the apartment space change where in the apartment space, you have a focus on amenities, home offices, uh, tech in the home uh, to kind of gear people towards uh, a more lifestyle experience versus the traditional apartment. And I think that's a good innovation that's happening in multi-housing right now. Um, But in general, uh, I like the activity that we're seeing. It's a great time to be involved in real estate. Uh, It's neat to get back in and get my feet wet uh, from a different perspective uh, than as the broker, the traditional broker. Uh, So I'm seeing some good opportunity in that. Well, I just posted on my Facebook today, uh, Ben Baker, shout out to him. He's the... uh, mayor of uh, the city of Dayton, Kentucky, Uh uh, and Katie Meyer, whose father is the mayor of Covington, Kentucky. They just worked out a deal, and I believe Katie works at Cincinnati Bell or did work at Cincinnati Bell, but they just provided the – there's one um, affordable housing complex in Dayton, Kentucky, and they just supplied all the residents with free Wi-Fi. Yeah. And actually, that's what the complex in Ohio up in uh, Reynoldsburg is going to be doing. They're going to be supplying free Wi-Fi. They're also doing uh, direct wire for hardwire in each unit. Um, In addition to that, every unit has a small office space. So they added some square footage to the traditional two bedroom, two bath unit for small office space. And I think developers need to be thinking about that. More people are going to continue to work remotely. I don't I don't think we're going to see a full shift back to the way things were. I think we're Mm going to see a hybrid employment between the in office worker and the remote worker. And so uh, communities have to start planning for that. But the truth about it is you build one of these and you can lease them in less than 90, 120 days, the lines out the door. Oh yeah. Uh, and Reynolds, Reynoldsburg, Ohio has done a really good job. They've sustained a three to 5% growth rate for their city for the past five years. Wow. That's uh, good. Yeah. yeah. Really so, good. And, and it's through the approach of working with developers and multifamily units that we're seeing some cities uh, create some density and also, you know, improve uh, the impact on their community. So I'm excited to be a part of that that's, project. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, and I'm always a critic of, uh, you know, you get a lot of people who say they want to help and, you know, they get on social media and they're, you know, social media advocates or, or you know, and they'll do all this stuff and say all this stuff, but, you know, they live out in the middle of, you know, on some cul-de-sac somewhere and a gated community (laughs) and, you know, they don't pay taxes in the city, right? Right. Where where people actually need the help, right? right? Or in some of these rural communities. And I always say, look, it's up to us as individuals to go out and make 
some sort of an effort in our own communities to do something. You can complain all you want. There's a system and there's all this stuff keeping you from, you know, keeping people down and all this other stuff. But if you know somebody who needs something and you've got the ability to help them, then go do it. You know, that actually has been a hallmark to my career my whole life. Um, I, I was born and raised in Vivi, Indiana, which mm-hmm. is the small rural town. Uh, I, re- I always tell the joke that when I grew up, we would back into the bathroom to walk out because the house was so small. <laughs> <laughs> but what's so funny about that was in our town, we didn't have jobs. You know, U.S. Shoe Factory was uh, was our big employer. They closed. Um, so the town was really struggling. You know, what are we going to do to create a future? And uh, this was back in the mid-1990s, obviously. Um, a lot of effort, assemblage, uh, community effort went together and Belterra Casino and Resort came in and it changed the whole dynamic of the community. It provided jobs, it provided commerce, uh, it impacted the community locally. Fortunately, we had community leaders at the time that were really smart and they negotiated a tax revenue share program oh, off, of smart. The, off of the revenues of the casino. You know, the casinos don't lose money. So. No. <laughs> and, and so at the end of the day, they ended up with some new fire departments, uh, Uh, They also ended up with a new health department, which was kind of something that was important to me being involved in the project because my first job at 14 years old was working in that health department. No way. And and there's a funny story to that story. But uh, the long story short was my parents wanted me to go to work. I was 14 years old. They were going to have a summer job training program. So I went to this meeting about the job training program. And long story short, the jobs were all going to be painting picnic tables and things for this was wine festival, which they have there in VV every August. Oh, I see. It's like the Swiss uh, thing, whatever yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so the speaker at the events uh, spoke up and said, I have one other job if anyone's interested. So I raised my hand and said, what is it? And, and, I, and she says, would you be interested? I said, is it air conditioned? And the, she said, yes, it's doing genealogy at the health department. I said, I'll take it. And just from that, my whole life changed. Uh, the lady, her name was Betty Lucas, that ran the local health department. She didn't have any children. And she took me under her wing as a mentor. And her mentorship changed my life. By age 18, I was assistant uh, director with her at the health department. I was also assistant director on a senior housing complex, uh, doing rental certifications. And then I was doing bookkeeping for three township trustees, York Jefferson and Craig Township trustees. Keeping an eye on them. And I was, <laughs> I was, you know, just under 18 years old. They were letting me out of school early so I could go to work. I was knocking down three thousand dollars or so a month. Oh wow! <laughs> and it, yeah. it just, it just. So I remember it was so funny. She, that whole opportunity taught me so much about how one person can impact a community because her life. Uh, it lived to impact that community in VV. It wouldn't have have the health services it does today. It wouldn't have the senior housing projects. It wouldn't even have some of the casino development things that came later because she was a powerhouse behind getting those initiatives done. And I was always so thankful for her mentorship because it taught me the value of how someone just being an entrepreneur can create jobs impact the community and make change. What and, was her name again? Uh, Betty Lucas. Betty Lucas. Uh, yeah, okay. She just recently de- retired from the health department uh, about a year and a half ago. Good for ago. her. Yeah, Hopefully she, she's enjoying she's, herself. <laughs> she is enjoying herself, but she was one of the best mentors I had, but really taught me to look at community and development and growth and impact from a different perspective. Uh, you know, we can all talk about impact, but we, we know the facts. The facts are you need money. You need to build relationships and network and you need to have a plan Yeah, and you need to stick to it because it's going to take you some time to get it all done. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I posted something the other day and I've got friends out there who, um, you know, I'd call them Facebook activists, I guess. 
And uh, it was a fundraiser for a good organization. I posted it out there and they said, hey, not everything's about money. You know, uh, it's about awareness, you know, and I'm like, well, consider this your awareness. Now send us some money, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Because <laughs> you don't get much done without it. I mean, yeah, you don't, I, you don't, you can't. It you just can't. is what it is. It, it is, is what it is. It and you, is. I mean, you could ask, you could beg too much and get on people's nerves, but right. at the same time, you know, when there's something good, I mean, I don't, I don't post things that frequently, but, um, you know, I, I, I want to get back to my high school because right. I feel like that was one of the things that got me out of, you know, the neighborhood that I was in, which was, you know, heavy gang violence, things like that. Get me out of that situation, put me into on a path to right. a career, which led right. me eventually to, you know, I, I used to like to draw and everything when I was a kid. So that school at school for creative and Foreman arts led me to own an agency now yeah, and do design work. And, and the, it actually was real estate that led me to owning a management consulting firm. Because mm. when I retired in 2014, I thought I was pretty much done. You know, I was going to take a break and semi-retire and enjoy life and travel. And I started having friends who owned businesses call me. And they were like, Tim, we know you know how to solve this problem. We're dealing with this in our accounting system. or We're over here dealing with this in our innovation and strategy, or we need a business. Tim, we have a problem with our accounting system. We don't have enough money and we know you got money now. So can you give us some to help us fix our accounting system? And little did I know, I just started helping friends. You know, it was just, okay, great. I can do that. I've got the time. Let me go over and help. And one thing led to another. And now, you know, we have clients all over the country we work with. And uh, it all just started being willing to help, to take what I learned over those years that I ran businesses and just being willing to help. And so now we're we're seeing that expand and grow and we're having some pretty good impact. I'm, I'm and is this the DEI consulting I mean, that you're working on? Actually, this is more our startup uh, entrepreneurial consulting and our DEI. Um, with the startup entrepreneurial consulting, we forge some relationships nationally. Uh, through, I have a program I wrote called the Smart Up uh, Strategy Process. And the whole concept there is instead of startup, let's smart up. Uh, in mm. other words, you know, uh, there are some traditional and non-traditional approaches to startups. But what I find with most entrepreneurs is just a lack of organization. Oh, my or, God. Yes. Or a lack of pulling. Creative things. people are the worst to be organized, I think. Exactly. I'm terrible at it. I know that. <laughs> and so... I developed a five-step program based on, uh, it's real simple, the idea, the team, the plan, the pitch, and the launch. And then I built a curriculum around that uh, So, because I wanted to work with startups in that space in a way that I was mentored when I was younger uh, by Betty uh, that I told you about. So uh, what I wanted to create was a pathway to funding, not just uh, a class they go through with a bunch of worksheets and they fill that out, but where they are actually given smart up advisors that are successful business people that have experience. Uh, we have the former CFO of Communicare. Uh, we have a former two time special counsel, legal, uh, advisor. Gotta have the legal advisors. That yeah. Special counsel to the Ohio attorney general. Uh, I mean, so we have, we have been very fortunate assembling uh, some strong advisors to work with our startups. And then I also wanted to create a program where when they're done with it, they still have equity. Like we're not taking an equity position. It's more of a curriculum based uh, program. So with that, um, one of the uh, relationships we wanted to forge was our st a strategic partnership for a direct pathway to funding. And we found that with Honeycomb Credit. So now uh, all of our startups that we work with and advise, they go through a specific program, the smart up strategy process. And then once they're done, they have direct access for Honeycomb Credit to run live crowdfunding campaigns and we can crowdfund up to a million dollars. Wow. So once I started working with Honeycomb Credit, they're like, this is working great. Why don't you work with all of our startups and all of our Clients. What? So now we consult for uh, pretty much uh, 
80 to 90 percent of all campaigns that are on Honeycomb Credit. Uh, this first quarter in 2021, we worked on 11 different campaigns from minority to women to LGBTQ owners. And we were able to see over $700,000 successfully raised in their campaigns. Wow. And in our support to Honeycomb Credit has just simply been providing that advisory uh, strength to their entrepreneurs, uh, reviewing business plans, helping them create pitch decks. Um, I love it. This is what people struggle with. It is. This is 100% what people struggle with. Yeah. They have a great idea, we often find, but they don't always have a great path for how they're going to execute that idea. And then what are you going to do when you get money? You know, you get people to invest in you. What is your strategy? How are you going to hit the street walking? And so... um, I really wanted to create a program. So I was so passionate about it. Um, I actually created the startup challenge, which is free. Uh, people can go to our website. They can take the startup challenge. It's 19 segments. Uh, What's the website? Uh, the Osborne group dot biz B I Z. They can go out to our website. They can take the startup challenge. And now we require all of our startups to do that. It's a, we combine learning from across uh, academic world. Uh, you know, me being an educator, I bring in the academic side, uh, video, that have been published by Y Combinator and other sources. Wow. And what we're doing is building a core knowledge base so that when they go into our smart up strategy process, the formal program with an advisor, they come in with their guns loaded. They're ready to work now. And uh, so uh, we're real excited about that. I was just on uh, a call earlier today with Honeycomb Credit. We're going; they're going to be working with Finley Market on oh. some things uh, with uh, with the work that's being done over there. So we're excited about that. Uh, of course, uh, we'll be supporting whatever Honeycomb Credit needs from us for I that. So that that is a big part of our entrepreneurial work that we're doing with startups. Um, now, my next evolution of that is creating. Uh, an opportunity and a funding source for LGBTQ plus uh, founders and startups. So we recently launched uh, last month our LGBTQ founders and startups network. Um, As you know, uh, our company was one of the first uh, ever certified LGBTBE certified companies in the city. Which is awesome. And so um, now we're wanting to actually subsidize some of that curriculum cost for our startups to reduce barriers so that they can get into the program and launch their ideas. So we're real excited about that. Uh, we have, we have everything from restaurant concepts to esports uh, to uh, websites, SaaS applications, e-commerce. We have all these different things going on. And I love this because it's it's a ni- you're starting to see these channels for niche groups. Yep. Uh, there's mortar. For mostly African-American founders. Uh, What you're doing, I think, is really good because I I feel like there's a lot of people out there that don't feel connected to the startup world and they don't necessarily feel welcomed. And I think what you're going to do a great job of is welcoming them in and and giving them that pathway to becoming an entrepreneur and, and breaking down some of those barriers. I hear a lot of negativity, I feel like, as soon as you say the word capitalism, right, right, it's like the evilest thing in the world, right? And I, right. we talked about this. I spoke at a class the other day, uh, and there was a, a a student who was transitioning, right, and said to me, "I'm poor, my dad's poor, we're always going to be poor, and I'm trans, so no one's ever going to give me a job." Yeah. And sadly, that is the reality for many in the LGBTQ community, everything from discrimination at work uh, to barriers to uh, funding their ideas or even even the uh, safe environment to cultivate their ideas. And so we wanted to create that safe space. But we really have created, in my view now, a home run. And it's a home run because, one, we solved the funding component uh, to be able to get them once they're through the smart up uh, strategy process, get them funded. Uh, but the second thing that we've really hit 
a home run with is our relationship with NGLCC, the National Gay and Lesbian Chamber of Commerce. And so being an LGBTBE certified, uh, we now can not only get them funded, but we can also get them certified. And then we can help introduce them to the Fortune 500 world and supplier diversity. Wow. So it, it really is a home run now. And uh, I, over the next year, we're going to be doing a lot of local events, uh, a lot of uh, grants and applications. You'll see that. But we're real, really excited about that. One of the things that come out of that was a company had asked me, uh, we would like you to come in and assess our company and tell us how we're doing for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And this was a request I got back last October. And uh, one of the things I discovered was there really wasn't a good tool to use. There were a series of best practices from the academic world, uh, and there were some measuring and monitoring that different organizations were doing. But one of the huge um, comments we kept hearing from employees and from consumers was we see a lot of companies promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion, but we don't really know what they're doing mm. about it. We well, don't no, see that, I say this all the time. I literally, I spoke at, um, at something similar to what you're doing. Uh, Marvin Abranca is doing this wonder fund and he started Esoteric Brewing, which is a minority owned brewery right. up in East Walnut Hills. So I'm up there and I'm talking and I say, I hear, I sit in on these, these calls with the startup community and I, I see all these things that big co's put out there and they say, Hey, we want to get more minority owned, uh, founders right. funded. We want to find more sea level African-American men. We want to do all this stuff. But if you go into these communities, yeah. I don't think they, they're, they, they're not getting any flyers in their mailboxes. They're not, and nobody's knocking on their door. Nobody's giving them a call. They don't know the first thing about any of this stuff that's happening. Like, where's the disconnect? I think the next evolution that the last year, the pandemic, political climate, all kinds of things taught us is that we need change and we need change that includes accountability, accountability for employers, accountability for corporations. Uh, your, what you do needs to be backed by action, not just words. It's not good enough anymore uh, from the consumer and the employee. Yeah, you get a little press on the on the yeah. business courier. I don't know anybody in my neighborhood that reads the business courier. Yeah, so what, what actually... I did, which was was unique, um, because I couldn't find what I was looking for back in October for this company that had asked us to do this assessment. Um, I just pulled my entrepreneur hat out and my innovators hat. And I talked to a few friends that had some credentials and skills. Uh, one was a former global and diversity director for a Dow Corning. Another had a doctor in organizational psychology. And I said, we need to fix this. And so out of it evolved uh, the Emerge DEI scorecard assessment and audit, which we launched this year, uh, along with the DEI index. And so now uh, we have created an audit that can be used uh, by consultants uh, to audit organizations. And it measures not only their words, but their actions. Mm. And it's all based in quantitative and qualitative analysis. There's a whole scientific side to it. Um, and those organizations that score well, uh, meaning 90% or higher, can uh, now be certified DEI workplaces. Um, but it, one thing I can assure you is to score well, you have to do the work. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's beyond fluff because we're literally measuring, you know, how are you doing the work? How are you making these efforts to be more inclusive? Um, and so there's this whole 50 question audit assessment that's done. Um, to my surprise, it's been a huge round of success for us. Good. Uh, I was just wanting to do something good. Yeah. 
And so now uh, we currently in June are holding our first certified partner event uh, to certify consultants to utilize our tools. Uh, we have 16 consultants in about nine different states uh, that are getting certified uh, wow. in June, the end of June. Um, and they will go out to their clients and start implementing uh, the DEI index and the Emerge DEI scorecard. Um, and we based the whole process on measuring six areas that spell the word emerge. Uh, the first is executive and board commitment. You know, everything begins with leadership. Sure. And so where are the leaders? How are we leading this? Um, the second is, you know, managing the alignment of your organizational policies, making sure that your words and your policies align and that your actions align with your words and your policies. And, and that that's a huge uh, component. Uh, the other word, uh, the other way we're evaluating is how are we allocating resources to vendors and suppliers? Are we being diverse with how we're spending our money? Uh, consumers want to know that. Uh, research studies show that consumers uh, are looking for that transparency. They want to know that when they buy a product from a company, that whatever profits or margins are made, that that company is using that margin and profit to do good. Yes. Uh, so um, that's one element. Another element's gauging awareness. Uh, and then the big punch is really examining accountability. How are we as an organization or uh, how is an organization implementing strategies for accountability? So they, the scorecard uh, measures those uh, six different areas. And then you uh, evaluate from across a maturity matrix. And that maturity matrix looks at whether the organization is lagging, initiating, uh, coordinating, integrating, or actualizing. So uh, it's a hundred point scale. And each in each one of those categories. So it's very mathematical and scientific. Um, the interesting thing is we always ask an organization who's getting ready to go through the assessment and audit. How do you feel like you're doing? Uh, mm. What is your perspective? Uh, honestly, honestly. <laughs> and I usually get the response of, I feel like we're doing okay, but I feel like we could do so much better. I'm like, well, on a scale of one to a hundred, you know, how would you rank yourself today? Um, and when we come back, uh, usually they're, they're below where they thought they were. There's more work to be done, but they're amazed at how thorough every element of diversity, equity, and inclusion were evaluated. Uh, and so when they don't hit the 90 percentile target, uh, they receive a report uh, we give them recommendations and then we provide them with support on how to get to 90%. See, and this is good. You actually help them organize and you give them steps and, and you show them these different categories. Yeah. And, and I don't think people could do that on their own. Like, I, don't, I just don't think HR, they're equipped. Re really, we don't even recommend that it's an HR function. Oh. Uh, we take that from a total different perspective. We, we would prefer the DEI monitor or the diversity, equity, and inclusion director to coordinate with HR. Obviously, you need to. Sure. But not be HR. Because you said leadership. Starts yeah, with leadership. Starts so you're, ta leadership. you're talking, let's go to the top. Let's go to the top because- what we find is HR has so much to do. HR is doing so many different things from hiring to onboarding to programming, workshops, training, employee retention. There's so much for them to focus on that what happens often is the DEI parts tend to fall through the cracks. Uh, and um, so we actually prefer organizations to have a designated DEI monitor, a coordinator, or create a diversity, equity, inclusion director role. Uh, and then from that, they coordinate with all the different departments. It also becomes the safe place that people can go to uh, if they feel like there are inequities or they're not being treated fairly. Uh, that's where you can go. And you can have that conversation uh, for reasonable accommodations or whatever. Um, so we're actually taking a different approach with that. And I'm actually seeing some good success because the organizations that do that are able to actually give the 
resources and the manpower to focus on the DEI component. And one of the things that I always say is diversity is about what it looks like. Equity is how fair everything is. Inclusion is how it feels. Mm. And so yeah. uh, the whole uh, process of measuring uh, DEI and maturity is what do we look like? How fair are we being? And then how does it feel to work here? How does yeah. it feel to be a part of your organization? Regardless of what my ethnicity or sexual orientation or any of that is, how does it feel to be a part of you, your organization as an employee? And how does it feel to do business with you as a consumer? Um, you know, am I treated uh, e- equally and fairly? And so um, I, I think we're going to see over the next two to three years, a huge advancement in account- accountability in this area, mostly because consumers and employees want it. <laughs> yeah. And I think nationally, nationally. They're, they're requesting it. And one, one problem I've always had, you know, I love Cincinnati. Like this is, you know, I wouldn't have been running for mayor if I didn't love Cincinnati. And what upsets me is when people don't feel like they're welcomed in their own city, they're born and raised yeah. here or they move here. And they leave. Yeah. Right. I've had uh, a, a friend of mine, Nick, who moved to San Francisco, you know, every once in a while he'll post something like I couldn't do this in Cincinnati. You know, the climate in Cincinnati isn't welcoming for me. Um, you know, just felt more comfortable in a place like Cincinnati. And he's a talented person who makes good money, who's yeah. responsible, who is a great citizen, someone you want to have in your city. Right. right. And, and creative, you know, di- didn't feel comfortable here. Right. And I think I think part of what we're struggling with in society in general, especially because it's not just Cincinnati. It's not just Cincinnati in the area of diversity, equity and inclusion. um, I, I think we have old ways of doing things that used to apparently work, but they didn't work for everybody. And now that we have a consciousness uh, and an awareness within society that things need to be fair for everyone. Everyone needs to be treated right. Everyone should be uh, allowed to have that American dream, mm-hmm. uh, regardless of who they are. And so uh, I, I think that all that we've been through with the pandemic and politics and everything the past year or two has just really peeled back the bandaid to expose that the wound was still there. And so now we've got to do some of that deep work uh, so that we can get real healing and empathy has got to be included. Authenticity has got to be included. Compassion has got to be included. And those are the things that we have to, to realign and bring back. Um, And, and then I think also too. you can't build unity from divided spaces. Right. So we have to understand that diversity numbers and diversity uh, as a measurement is really to give us insight and it's the insight and what we do with that insight that will determine whether or not we are able to unite. And so if we're looking at quotas and numbers alone, um, they can be an indicator. They can be an insight, but that shouldn't be the something goal. to benchmark against, it's, right? It's but, a benchmark. Yeah. So the goal is to bring people together and build an inclusive organization that can accomplish the work to be done and the goals and the vision of the organization. So um, often we don't know how to approach those insights. That's where I say the devil gets in the details, Mm -hmm. so to speak. Um, Okay. I have an insight that we're not doing as well. And maybe this one area that we should be. All right. So the question should naturally then be, how do I do better? How can I be more inclusive? And how can I remove any barrier that's preventing opportunity for success? And um, what I find is it's in the removing of the barriers, increasing access, including people in those conversations um, and nurturing that insight to where it evolves into policy. It evolves into uh, actionable steps Um that's where the work really gets. And I at. think it's it's people like you in the community. You know the community. Yeah. And you're here in Cincinnati. You love the city too. I mean, you're, you know. I you, chose to stay here. I you chose to stay here. Yeah. A, a buddy of mine, Cecil, he was on our podcast earlier 
um, in a, on another episode and he's got his own company now, but he is uh, Mexican and Jamaican. Right. Yeah. And when we were kids, he would say, Oh, I don't like Cincinnati. I'm going to leave. Cause there's not enough, uh, Hispanic people or not enough Latino people here. Right, right? right. And I'm like, well, don't you think the reason there's not a lot here is because you keep moving, right? You keep leaving, like right. you st- stay, stay, stay in your ground. Yeah. Stay. Yeah. Do you something know, in, 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 in nurture that community of yours, you know, the, that's funny that you said that because they used to always refer to me and my husband as the UN, uh, because, uh, I adopted three children, all biracial, um, my oldest is black African-American. My daughter is Middle Eastern and black African-American. And my youngest is Hispanic. And so um, I grew up in a family where and my extended family was from Puerto Rico and Cuba. So uh, I grew up speaking Spanish, too. And uh, I wanted I was adopted as a child. And so. Uh, my story was that I was separated from my brothers, met mm. them later in my life. So I always said if I had the power to do good, um, I wanted to adopt a sibling group and keep them together. And so we did. Uh, and, now, you know, that was such a huge and a different story, uh, you know, going from zero to three children overnight. Wow. Yeah. And the journey of having a child that had behavioral development problems uh, to an 18 month old changing diapers and a three day old that we picked up at the hospital that we didn't know was coming until Friday. And we picked him up on Saturday. Whoa. Well, God <laughs> and, bless you for that, because, I mean, there's a lot of people out here, too, that, you know, it, it's hard to adopt. It's hard to find kids yeah, out here yeah, it was, that you can adopt. Uh, uh, the funny story to us is the birth mom kept having them. <laughs> <laughs> So we were we were not having struggling finding them. We were struggling getting them to stop. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so makes but, sense. But now my oldest, he's uh, twenty two, and he is a marine in California. Wow. Um, he was the child who they told me uh, was going to be the one we'd have to lock away. Uh, we got him off all of his medication adjusted his diet, just a lot of TLC. He ended up graduating with honors uh, from high school, wow. went on to his, his four-year term is up the end of this year. Uh, my 16-year-old daughter, she's an artist. Uh, she's one of the best painters I've ever seen at 16 years old. Uh, she's just, of course, she's all excited because she gets to start her first job with us this week. Nice. You know, she's okay. Be working Keep it at, in the family. Uh, yeah. And then the 14-year-old, he's just a bundle of joy. And life is good. He's the entrepreneur one. He's the one that's going to want to. You can tell already. I can already tell. He'll hustle anything for a dollar. <laughs> He's like, I'll sell you this. So, um, and then my husband has two children who are in Virginia who are um, 27 and 25. And one's a pop artist uh, oh, wow. in the LGBTQ scene. So what's, the, what's uh, his? Uh, Rocky Mara. Rocky Mara. M-A-R-A? <laughs> yep. Okay. And so uh, we're really excited about that. So we have a diverse family. And um, one of the things I've seen raising children. I remember when my children were young and we would go to restaurants here in the region and we'd get the look, you know, cause I had all these biracial children and I, you know, I'm me and I'm as white as they come. <laughs> and <laughs> they'd the be club. looking at me like, he can't be the dad. You know, he, you were getting all oh, of these, yeah. uh, oh, these yeah. eyeballs. Did you ever do your, uh, your DNA research or any of that? <laughs> yeah. I did mine. It was like 90% French and German. Mine's German. <laughs> yeah. So, so, yeah. So, so that was always a fun story. But yeah, I think it was just the journey to coming out, the journey with my children, the journey in the corporate world and business, where really I kind of found this passion to take DEI to another level and bringing accountability and let's reunite people again. Yeah. Let's, let's uh, do good again. Uh, there's not enough good. There's not enough good. And I think, you know, you hear a lot of this stuff, you just negativity in communities. One thing I can't stand more than anything is when people tell other people they can't do something. They tell them oh, more about yes. what they can't do 
than what they can do. And that can come from anywhere. That can come from people you that idolize. for me. <laughs> no. Oh, no, 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 no. I was the one that was going to I've known you I long could. enough. Yeah. You're, it doesn't matter what somebody says to you. And obviously, I mean, you've been, you've had people say things to you and probably discriminated against you. And, oh, yeah. you know, you've had a lot of reasons, I'm sure, to give up yeah. and to just, you know, wallow in your misery, right? Right. But that's just not your personality. You're like the most positive person I know. No, no I wasn't going to do that because I was, I was never going to give people the power power to define me. Ooh. I was always going to, I was always going to find out who I was and be who I am. And that was an authentic journey for me. Uh, I call it my journey to authenticity uh, is being my authentic self. Um, because when you are in that place of being authentic, uh, you find that those who have similar stories or similar journeys they tend to cross your path along the way. It's, you know, kind of a divine thing kind of happening. And you're able to, through authenticity, to speak to them. And, you know, I, and when you're speaking to someone, one of the greatest things I always try to teach is that we are what we think we are. And if we don't think we can ever make a dime, we're going to always be poor. We're always going to be broke. We're always going to have this hardship. Because you're never going to try. You're definitely going to be broke if you don't try. Yeah. You're, you're living to the power of your thoughts. Mm. And so uh, I want to empower you to live to a greater thought. And so uh, I, until I change the way I think, I can't change the way I live. Mm. And that's such a powerful place for people. Uh, the sky is really the limit. And, you know, I come from that rural house that you backed in the bathroom to walk out. And I, you know, everything uh, about my life and my life journey being adopted, all of those things were formulas for, you know, obstacles that people would statistically say I shouldn't succeed. Oh, my God. I know that story. Yeah. And then when, now that I have, I truly have committed the rest of my years to reaching out to those other people who were like me, uh, who may feel that way and say, you know, it, that doesn't have to be your story. Here's a blank book. You get to write the pages. That's right. And so let's write your pages. Uh, let's surround you with some mentors and some help. And let's like, cause I had that. It, it had not been for Betty Lucas. Uh, when I was 14 years old, I wouldn't be where I am God bless her. today. And yep. I mean, and look what she did. Like she didn't just help you get out of the circumstance you were yeah. in as a young person. She turned you into her. Yeah. Now you are Betty Lewis. Yeah. And now right? I have the power and, and the ability to mentor. Uh, and Well, you have I, three I, children. That, yeah, they, I have three children and employees and yeah. all kinds of and startup company I founders. Look, one of the kids was, they wrote him off. You know, they wrote him off yeah. and now he's a Marine and, you know. Yeah, that was such a funny story. I'll have to share more about that one time sometime. But he was such a, and really all it was is he needed TLC. He was being over medicated for his behavior. So that needed to be adjusted. And he had a horrible allergy to sugar and it was triggering a lot of his behavior. So finding that out getting him off of uh, sugars and on a more natural diet life safe team. Um, and I remember the first two years, you know, being called to the school because my son was the one throwing the desks across the room, locked in a padded room and security standing outside of it and saying, Mr. Osborne, you need to go in and, and deal with this. And then, uh, I always took it as an opportunity to love him to the other side. Mm. And that's the way I take business. Uh, when I mentor startups, when I work with people, it's an opportunity to be that bridge, to grab someone's hand and say, let's step to the other side. There's a whole nother world out here. Uh, There's not enough uh, of that positivity. Uh, I think, yeah. I think you've got a lot of people that are quick to tell everyone why they can't succeed. Mm -hmm. And why there's going to be these barriers for them. And it's good to be aware of those things. And it's good to have reality too. Yeah. But beyond that, you can create a lot more. <laughs> That's right. Well, you could say, hey, look, you're going to deal with this stuff. Right. But everybody deals with something. Everybody's got demons. Everybody's yeah. got somebody that's made fun of their shoes when they were kids or made yeah. fun of their haircut or made fun of whatever it is. Right. But 
you know, there's folks out there who feel like, you know, they're being discriminated against for something they can't change. Yeah. You know, and that, especially for those that are from the LGBTQ community, um, so much of family environment, uh, religious circles, uh, they teach you to conform, to be what you're supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And um, the reality of that is that creates a confusion from living who you are. Uh, And the confusion comes in because obviously for me, I wanted to be that good child. I wanted, you know, I was so thankful I had parents who adopted me. You know, I wanted to, to prove to them that, you know, I had all this messed up thinking and uh, the greatest gift I ever gave myself was accepting and loving myself for who I am. Mm. And, and, and since I made that decision, um, I think I love other people better. And I feel like I'm able to connect. You've done that work on yourself. I've done that work on myself. And the thing about that personal journey to your own identity, especially in the LGBTQ community, that personal journey in that story, you can't like bring that in from someone else's experience. It's your journey. It's different for each and every one of us. When we come out, how we come out, whether we transition, whether we don't transition. And what I think people don't outside of the community maybe don't understand very well is that um, all we really need people to do is just love us unconditionally. Just let us bloom. Let us shine. Uh, let us find, our, I always say, find your dance floor and do your jig. <laughs> <laughs> you know, where is your dance floor and do your jig? You know, that's kind of the, the, the concept there. And that was a hard journey for me. I mean, mm. I, I struggled through that, with that throughout my whole life. Well, especially being from a rural community. community. Yeah. yeah, it was really hard. So now to be on this side of the fence and able to help others uh, that really um, that motivates me more than anything uh, as far as that goes. Well, it's great that you've been able to, to become the person that helped you yeah. to, to help other people in your community. It's almost like there was a plan. Yeah, it, it is. And you know, one of the, the things that I learned uh, uh, over the years of owning different businesses and everything, uh, like recently we just bought the Zoop Eatery over. I love it. That's all I see your Facebook post. Uh, yeah. Over in Eastgate. And people are like, why would you want to buy a restaurant in the middle of a pandemic? Uh, and the truth was I did consulting work for Zoop and Zoop uh, had some people, some owners that were struggling and they were like, please help us turn that market back around. Because at one time there were five zoo eateries in our marketplace from here to Dayton. And so we were like, fine, we'll be glad to help you turn it around. And so we bought the zoo eatery. But the real reason why I did it is it creates jobs. And we have people who wanted to work for us who uh, needed jobs. And so we're like, okay, um, my husband was like, do you want to do this? And it was always his dream. Well, he's got a little experience. He's in, got a little yeah. bit of experience. What is it like every Starbucks in yeah, the yeah, region and uh, yeah, he's got Taco tw- Bells? Well, I, at one, he was 20 plus years with Uno's Pizzeria and Grill. Uh, and then he worked for a franchise owner in out of Westchester that had 13 Taco Bells and, and Uno's Pizzeria in Westchester. And then now he's at Starbucks and has a, uh, I think it's 26 or 27 uh, licensed store location. Can he make that potato pizza from Uno's? Does he know that? Oh, he, he knows still got that's that. A good, yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> he, that, he, he is, he is a restaurateur. And I really, <clears throat> excuse me, I really offered to help him. Because this was his dream. Uh, you know, I'm kind of living in my lane with my management consulting firm and DEI and the work we're doing with Honeycomb. But he really wanted uh, to uh, have uh, uh, a restaurant. So we formed Great Dining Brands, uh, which uh, basically our concept there is to be brand ambassadors for different concepts, Zoop being our first. Uh, and so our goal over the next seven, eight years is to have five to ten Zoop eateries between Northern Kentucky. Kentucky all the way up to uh, 
uh, Dayton. Wow. Uh, but then we have some other concepts that we want, he wants to do and, uh, and he wants to do, uh, you know, be a part of, um, and that's kind of his side hustle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and it, what's interesting about that is in the conversation about staff and employees, when we knew we were going to buy the zoo breedery, you know, who are we going to hire? And we were amazed at the number of people who wanted to work with us. I'm just I, once the word started to get out, here come the text messages. We're fully staffed. Like we don't have a staffing issue. We open this Saturday at 1030. We're fully staffed. We've, we've got staff. And some of the staff took pay cuts from career level jobs just to come work for us. And wow. Like, Cause they like, see the opportunity that, Hey, we start with this one. They know your yeah. goal is to open more. Now they're the GM so, of, I'm like, you know, we would love to pay. Of course, we pay our people well. I mean, our average wage at our Zoop is $15 an hour. Sure. So we're paid well. But uh, but they also have room to grow. They To be a general manager, work with us in other locations. And so I, I was like, well, why would you? We had a, one lady who was a district manager, you know, uh, over several locations in a different brand. She says, you know what? I'm. I just want to work with you guys. I just want to work where it's fun to go to work. There's a positive ownership yeah. every day. You care about us. And there are people that have worked for us over the years. And so I was talking to someone who recently said they were struggling finding help. And I said, you know, help will find you. Mm. When you have a reputation and you have a true heart, to care and do good for people. You want your employees to do well. You, I want, I want them to own a zoo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I want them Why to not? own a concept. Hey, I'll partner with you. Let's do this. If I can make their dream come true, that more power to it. And, um, but we really have experienced the opposite. And the, what I would say to any listener that's listening is that's the power of diversity, equity, and inclusion at work. It creates an attraction. Mm. It creates this this place people want to work at and this place people want to work with you. And uh, that was a shock to me because I was really surprised we had uh, that much loyalty amongst people we knew that they would transition to work for us. And I, I think that as in organizations and corporations and businesses move more to a diverse, equitable and inclusive culture and, and do it from an authentic, empathetic and compassionate point of view. Um, I think they're going to win in this talent uh, world that we're in. Right I now. agree with you with that. Yeah. I 100% agree with you with that. And I, when you think about it, you know, Cincinnati has the, I think fifth highest child poverty rate in the country. And the school that I'm on the board of, my, my high school, has a 63% poverty rate with its students, right? Wow. And a 100% graduation rate, which is awesome, right? right? Exactly. But so does Walnut Hills. So those two schools um, with 100% graduation rates, I forget what overall Cincinnati public is. But you have two schools with 100%, and the overall graduation rate's still like around 60%. Yeah. With two schools that have 100%. And it's because those schools give people direction. Yeah. Right? They're magnet schools. They give you direction. Right. Now, think about all these other kids and how high the poverty rates are at some of these other schools. Uh, what's What chances do they have? And and I always hear people that, you know, they're like, oh, capitalism's the most evilest thing. I don't think I've ever met an entrepreneur like you or anybody else who doesn't want to see people do well. Yeah. We want, we know what it's done for us. Right. In the situations that we grew up in. And I told the kids, I said, look like 85% of people who are wealthy actually grew up poor. Yeah. None of them. I can almost guarantee you, unless somehow they've been indoctrinated into the Illuminati or something. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> None of them want to see people poor. Every one of them want to help. I can almost guarantee you. And when you get more successful, the more successful you get, the more time you end up having to give back. And I said, if you're poor, you can't help anybody. Yeah. I used to always teach uh, in one of my classes, wealth is the power to influence. Mm -hmm. 
um, it isn't really about how much money you have as much as it is what you do with it. Mm. Um, and truly wealthy people are influential people and, and they're influential in the way that they, they know how to direct their resources to solve problems and do good. And so uh, one of the things I, I teach to startup entrepreneurs is really this is the wealth you want. The wealth you want is the power to do good, the power to influence. So when your dream comes to pass, don't forget the people who helped right. you get there. I think of the Mayersons, Otto Budig, people yeah. like that locally yeah. who we wouldn't have the arts community that we have here right. if it exactly. wasn't for those people. Exactly. At all. Exactly. And I can think of two or three champions in the LGBTQ community that a lot of the good that happens in the community for the LGBTQ community are t- completely related to those individuals who put in that effort to build community and to do good. So that's really kind of my whole mojo and what I'm about yeah. is it, I, I'm at a blessed place in my life where I can choose what work I want to participate in and what I want to do. And, um, it's really about those things. It's really about how can I, uh, position myself, uh, to impact things for good. And my focus right now is I really want to see our LGBTQ community, um, be stronger in entrepreneurship, uh, also be empowered. Uh, many of them, in my view, have phenomenal ideas and uh, we need to get some work done and accomplish uh, providing access to them and opportunity uh, to my community in that regard. And so um, I've really focused on how can I be a a champion and a voice for that? Uh, And uh, it's a big passion of mine. And you stuck around. And you I stuck around, stick and, around you actually and I'm going to stick around. <laughs> yeah, you could be on Facebook posting things like, I'm upset, right? right. But no, you're like, hey, look, it, it is what it is. I'm going to go out here and I'm going to make this change happen. That's exactly I'm going to work in my up. community and I'm going to make it happen. And I think, you know, me being Appalachian, you know, I have a soft spot for, you know, people who have just historically been left behind right? and right. who probably live in households where they're dealing with a lot of negativity. And they're dealing with a lot of, oh, you can't do that. Nobody in our family's ever done that. Why even try college? That's, you know, what are you now? You want to go to college? Like that kind of mentality, you hear that in the home. I still get that even though I'm on like my third or fourth degrees. (laughs) (laughs) Why are you still going to college? I want to learn. There's so much out there. I'm learning and I'm teaching at the same time (laughs) and I'm doing this DEI thing. And uh, look at all this stuff that we're doing. you 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 are making change. You are the change that people need need to make in their community. I think, and I mean that sincerely, you 100%, you say you want to do something and you do it. And, you know, from all the time that I've known you just understanding, you know, your history and everything else and overcoming, you know, some of the things you've overcome to be, to be the person you are and to give back in the way that you're giving back. It's, it's, it's honorable. Well, thank you for having me here today. It's been great. (laughs) Well, let's talk about, um, um, you know, let's leave this with, you know, what, what ways can people reach out to you? I know that, you know, if some people hear this, they're going to say, wow, I really need to get, I need to get in touch with Tim. I need to give back or, or what can I do to get involved in some of the things that Tim's doing? I think the best way is always find me on LinkedIn, uh, Timothy Osborne on LinkedIn. Uh, I, you know, I pretty much accept anyone who sends an invite. You're, you're the good looking guy. On, you're the good looking Timothy Osborne that, on there, right? Look at I, that. I won't admit that that, pay, that photo might be a few years old. <laughs> <laughs> The second way is just uh, connect to us through our website, the Osborne Group dot biz. Um, uh, there, uh, you know, we have everything from blog articles to content. Um, I it, with the website, I really tried to create it as an interactive opportunity uh, where people could uh, learn uh, and engage with us and grow. Uh, that's a great way. Um, and then all of my contact information is out on LinkedIn at our website. It is my cell phone number out there, so you can call me. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I mean, uh, especially if you're uh, about— Not with some spam. Uh, yeah. Some real real stuff. They'll just be spamming people, people. Yeah. But but, uh, but seriously, if you're wanting to do something in the community or you're wanting to have a partner to do good in the community, uh, we're, we'll sponsor, we'll help, uh, we'll get involved— um, 
you know, one of the big things my husband's been involved in for several years is the food truck rally up in Westchester, which uh, pre-pandemic would draw ten to 15,000 people wow. uh, a wow. year. Uh, I didn't even know about this. Jeez, uh, it's, it's more stuff. What? Yeah. So he's. You guys are worse than me. I, <laughs> yeah, we really are. <laughs> and so, I mean, however we can get. So if anyone's holding an event, needs a sponsor, they're they're doing something good in the community, they need corporate help, reach out to us. We're always willing to jump up and, uh, you know, be part of the team. And, you know, we'll even send volunteers uh, and employees and our staff and help volunteer for the whatever help they need. I love you know, it. Uh, we're really hands on in that regard. Um, I think as we do that, I, and as we have done that, it forges a lot of relationships and it forges a lot of unity. We need to see more of. Um, I think of so many different people doing great things in the city right now, um, and a lot of just really hard work um, and uh, there's good things on the horizon I think for our city and there's good things on the horizon as we continue to work together and uh, we tend to we continue to be inclusive uh, including all people and uh, really listening and um, caring uh, I think being empathetic and compassionate um the hardest thing for me to accept is someone who's in a situation they don't want to be in and they didn't know who to ask for help. Mm, that happens a lot. And it's like, you know, hey, call me. <laughs> call, yeah, yeah. I may not right be here. able to specifically do anything, but trust me, I know enough people. I try to tell people that all the I time. I will find it for you. <laughs> the, girl, the girl in the class that said her dad's poor, this and that. I reached out to the teacher. I said, Find me his information. Yeah, well, what can because there's do? no reason every anybody should, should be, be should feel like they're in a, a state of poverty forever. There's too much money in this country. Yeah, there's way too much money. There's too many opportunities. Your network is your net worth. If yeah. he doesn't know people, I know people. Like right. I'll connect you. I'll I'll find yeah. somebody. You you know how to hang a sheet of drywall? I know a guy's paying twenty five dollars an hour right now hanging a sheet of drywall. Yeah, you know, like I mean, let me know what you yeah. do, and I'll probably have somebody in my network that I can help you out with. In this this five percent child poverty rate, I mean, just imagine. If you could take that from, from you know, or not 5%, five, number five in the country, just right. imagine if you reduce that just to 10. Yeah. Now you got people who've become successful, who, who were left out to die, essentially. You know, these right. people aren't going to do anything. Just like your son, you know, yeah, he's never going to be anything. You're going to have trouble with this kid. Those kids, if you could just get them out of the situation they're in, get them into a Procter & Gamble, a Kroger, a position where right. they can help other people, they're going to go back into their communities. They're going to start businesses. They're going to go back in their communities, right. and then they're going to help those other ones who haven't been able to get out. Right. My son, I asked him recently, I'm like, well, you're about to get out of the Marines. You're coming back home, which I'm so happy. He's married now, him and his wife, they're moving back. I'm like, what do you want to do? He says, well, I want to go to Cincinnati State or to college. I want to study for engineering. But dad, I was thinking I might want to help run those zoops. <laughs> there and you I'm go. Like, my heart hit my chest. You know, this is the this is the kid that he said would never do anything. And now he wants to kind of learn the ropes, be like dad. And that just made He actually dad. sounds like the type of person to make a good manager. Wouldn't put oh, up with. Oh, he would. He would. A Marine. He was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he, you know, he towers he's over me. Throwing chairs and stuff back in the day. Yeah, he's the one you don't want to. You don't want to call in sick. You know, and pretend like you got some. Yo, I got. A, uh, yeah, so I actually got a concert I need to go to. Nope, so, you're coming in. That's right. Yeah, he'll go find them. You no, know, knowing him, especially he'll use he his marine him. tactical skills to, to hunt him down. Yeah. I'm looking through goggles at <laughs> night vision, and I see you 2.4 miles away. You don't look sick to me. <laughs> yeah, <don't. laughs> Good for him. That's fine. Well, awesome, Tim. I appreciate you coming in. This okay. has been uh, something that I think a lot of people need to hear about and be aware of. Thank you. And I think um, if, if folks, uh, you know, take anything from this and they want to help in any way, uh, definitely reach out to Tim, and uh, you're, you'll be happy to help, yeah. I'm sure. I'll do anything I can. All right, Tim. Thank you so much. I appreciate being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on this week's episode of Side Hustle City. Well, you've heard from our guests. Now let's hear from you. 
join our community on Facebook, Side Hustle City. It's a group where people share ideas, share their inspirational stories, and motivate each other to be successful and turn their side hustle into their main hustle. We'll see you there, and we'll see you next week on the show. Thank you. Thank you.